Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on uh, Sunday night, August 4th, 2019. Vacation is over. <laughs> Boy, you put that in the harshest possible way. We um, Here's another way to look at it. We're back from we Block Island. We just had two weeks of fabulous vacation in Block Island. The best weather we've ever had at Block Island. We had a wonderful time. First and foremost with Sigidi, who joined us for most of the time. Granger and Nico for a fair bit. Bryce and Lorna for a fair bit. We had a fabulous time. Okay. That's another way to describe where we are now. All right. And, and, and I, I am looking in the face of mounds of laundry. Mounds. It's, mounds. I, yes, laundry and, is something. And miscellaneous uh, right. bike equipment to put away and so forth. So right. We'll deal with it. Re-entry uh, is we, a biatch. Yes, but we're re-energized. We have a sunnier disposition. We have a new outlook on life. Uh, it will last 48 hours, perhaps, but we're in that period. We're in that uh, honeymoon so you, period. You did have a beer with dinner, didn't you? I did. You? I did have a beer with dinner. We just had dinner. So there we go. But we had a great time. And uh, the last weekend, since we want to focus on the very last of it, since we well, the, comment, the very last day, the very last day was spent searching for Michael Bean. Well, <laughs> people have to understand that that was the date of the uh, triathlon, which they have at Block Island, which of course is uh, a race in which you do a little swimming, a little biking, and a little running. And uh, we have a little history with that. Because various family members, including uh, including you, Tamsin, yes, both of us have, have participated done this. in the yeah. triathlon, and a couple of our kids, and, and Nico and Noel, right? And it's very tough. And the reason it's tough is that uh, on the one hand, it's not terribly competitive in terms of having world class athletes, world fast times, but and, and the swim is not difficult. It's very short. It's like a quarter mile. The swim is not a swim. It's a brawl. It's a brawl. You're really in the water. It's crowded. It's yeah, crowded. It's people crowded. are just kicking their way to the front. The bike ride is is not easy because it's very hilly. It's very hilly. But it's only twelve miles. Uh, yeah, it's twelve. Yeah, twelve miles or so. But it's hilly, so it's a little tough. But the, what kills you is the last bit is four miles, which doesn't sound bad, but it's in the sand and it's kind of uneven and it's inevitably a hot day. Uh, and running in the sand after you've done the swimming and the biking uh, in the heat. Uh, is brutal. Right. And it's brutal. And you could see it on the faces of all the participants in the triathlon on Saturday. And I have to say, including one, Michael Bean. So you ought to explain so how Michael, we, who and Michael Bean is. Michael and his daughter, Tina, have yes. been doing this yes. for many years. Yes. In fact, Michael's been doing it for so many years that now he regularly comes in first in his age well, group. Well, let's say... Let's, because let's, the rest of the age group has uh, aged out, aged, shall we say. <laughs> Well, first of all, we explain the Beans are friends of ours, friends of ours for yes, years. Yes, Virginia and Michael Bean yeah. introduced us to Block Island. To Block Island. That's right. Okay, and so they introduced us, and then the Gomperts, who were also friends with the Beans, tricked us into actually sharing a house in Block Island. Yes. And uh, so between those two groups, right. uh, we are highly indebted to uh, our introduction to them for our introduction to Block Island and a sort of lifelong devotion of our family to Block Island. That's true. That's true. And and so we revere them highly. And and we feel that we ought to, when we hear, heard that uh, Michael was doing the uh, triathlon again, we wanted to witness this and see if he could finish and indeed win his age group, which I, I think is described. And be there with phones to call 911 if necessary. Well, his age group, which I think we can say without giving away his age, 
His category is the ages 70 to 99. Yes. And and he won. And he won. Again. So, again. Again. He, he he hasn't won too often because he hadn't qualified in that age group before. But he, he was there. And, uh, you know, it's funny. There was an article in the Times about triathlons by total coincidence. Not about the Block Island Triathlon, but triathlons generally. And they say that there's been a movement in the triathlon uh, competition to make it more popular. That it's becoming too exclusive in the sense of people feeling that they have to have fantastic times. They have to be, you know, primo athletes to do it, to even participate. And, and that the equipment's awfully expensive. That if you even have a bicycle to do the biking part of it, you need a $1,500 bicycle. And it excludes a lot of people. And, a lot, and therefore, some are supporting the notion of fun triathlons, getting people to try to do these three things, uh, you know, the running, the swimming, and the biking the best you can, maybe a shorter triathlon, use whatever bike you have, but it's a lot of fun to be had. And uh, there are more triathlons like that. I think that Block Islands kind of fits into that category. Well, people didn't look like they were laughing (laughs) their way to the uh, finish line. Yeah, the run at the end. It was grueling. It was a a hot, hot sun, and running on that sand um, looked tough. Yeah, yeah. So they're not, uh, you know, primo athletes, but it is a test. It's I don't know. I saw some primo guys there. Did you really? Finishing. Yes. Did you yes. notice primo. that? Primo. You know, it's primo. funny. I didn't notice any primo guys. Oh, really? Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, in any event. Uh, it's, Black Island's always fun. We got to, of course, the swim was the week before, and Sadie would say the swim is the main athletic event in Black Island. The one-mile swim, the Great Salt Lake. So, um uh, there's a lot going on in Block Island. We had a great time, and uh, we love it. Yeah, it's highly nostalgic for us. And the kids were talking about how right. uh, they have such good memories of uh, fun had with the grandparents. Right, all kinds and, of experiences. Uh, yeah. They have nothing to do with races. flying kites yeah. with my mother. Which is hard to and imagine. And so when I talked to her this afternoon about, about Block Island, that was one of her main memories, flying did, kites. Did she remember? Yes, with the kids. Well, I'm glad because... Uh, those conversations. So there's always that tension, yeah. isn't there? Do you go someplace where you've been a million times and you have this tremendous connection? Or do you go off and have new adventures? I think when you're with family and even extended family, there's a good reason to go to some place unless you have some connection. Doesn't that resonate in a different way? Yeah, but it's hard to um, give up the excitement and stimulation. Well, people can of do new experiences. We, we go to more and more had, vacations. We, we have dragged our kids yeah. on new experience right. type vacations. Well, you have to, first of all, have been highly successful. In order to establish the connection, you have to have those first few vacations anyway. But and, and when you and I, on the other hand, also go on vacations by ourselves without the kids that are like biking vacations in Europe and things like that, yeah. they're just different. But we have many, many friends who can't believe we go to the same place. Do we? Yes. No one's had the nerve years to speak up to me. Years really? and years. Yeah. Oh no, it's uh, yeah, and we love it. More, more. I, I what the reaction I get is, you know, how is it that I'm ruining your vacation by making you do all this biking and swimming? What, what a terrible <laughs> husband am I? I've heard that from more than one, uh, you know, administrative assistant saying, "What is wrong with you? How does that woman stay married to you?" Well, that is a question for a whole nother podcast. All right. <laughs> yes. All right. So. Uh, Harold Prince died this week, and it's hard to imagine a bigger theater person than Harold Prince, uh, who as director and or producer in various productions has been involved in almost every major theater production over the last 40, 50 years, particularly 
if you don't count the last 10, because, you know, he's an older guy by this point. But, you know, you talk about... You so know, name them. West Side Story, Fiddler on the Roof, Phantom of the Opera, Avita. The, the list goes, almost everything else you think Sweeney Todd? Yes, Sweeney Todd. Cabaret? Cabaret, Follies, uh, going all the way back to Pajama Game. Pajama Game, he's, he's, he was just a stage manager working for George Abbott, a very young guy, and he and another friend of his, a cohort, read this book that they thought was funny called Seven and a Half Cents, and they bought the rights to Seven and a Half Cents, and they decided they'd produce a musical as kids, as kids. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, they went over their heads, and then they persuaded George Abbott to direct, and uh, it became a tremendous hit musical. And they were it like it was going. a much smaller Broadway world back then. Uh, yes, clearly, clearly it was. Clearly it was. But, you know, so there's no way to cover it. You can only say he's been involved in just about everything, including the most popular shows in a particular period. But one thing that caught my eye in terms of reading the various articles about him, and I think this does distinguish Prince in a lot of ways, is that uh, he really became a uh, an advocate and a leading producer of what was called the concept musical. And it starts really with cabaret. In other words, rather than tell a story, the conventional story that you would have in something like Showboat, which was a very advanced musical, or even Oklahoma, which was a very advanced musical at the time, to take something like Cabaret. Now, Cabaret was originally a book uh, called, called Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isher, Isherwood. It right. was a novella in 1939. It was about 1930s Germany, which you could imagine. Well, wasn't it Little Vignettes? Or... Yes, yes. Yeah. And then it became a play. I didn't realize how much of a play it was by John Van Druten called I Am a Camera. In 1951, starring, you'll never guess who became a star in that play, as Sally Bowles, one of the characters in, uh, in the Isherwood book. Julie Harris was Sally Bowles in 1951. And it became mm -hmm. a movie and she became a big star. But it was... It was basically Harold Prince's idea to sort of reimagine the whole thing in the early 1960s and put together the show that we now recognize as Cabaret, including the invention of this key character called the MC, right. which was the character that ultimately played while well, Alan Cummings played it. But uh, Joel Gray, Joel Gray, of course, became famous playing it and based on a character that Harold Prince observed during the war. Um, but in any event, it's a concept musical. It really, it, he really was telling the story of 1930s Germany more than he was telling anything else. And he did it with Candor and Ebb as the songwriters. And then then you have the other, the collaboration with Sondheim. And those are also great concept musicals. So you have Company, which is about a single man in New York, more than is a story about that individual guy. And then you have Follies about folks getting older uh, and memory. And how you think about the past. So it's not so much about, it's not plot driven. Right. It's more creating an ambiance or a sense of place. Exactly right. And exactly personality. right. Personality. Exactly right. And and uh, that's even true of a little night music and even true to some degree of Sweeney Todd because that's not a realistic musical. So uh, so working with Sondheim really worked, but then he comes back with Candor and Ebb. You have Kiss of the Spider Woman. Those are different types of musicals which Broadway kind of needed because. The old-fashioned stuff couldn't compete with the modern sensibility, with rock music, with a less organized, structured way of doing things. This was less structured, more creative, more demanding, more dramatic. And he was really at the forefront of that. So um, it's, it's well, a pretty know, amazing career. Broadway musicals never had very good plots or structures. They were silly. So, so it, all, it almost seems like a natural evolution. It does. And say, all right, 
you know, um, can't fight them, join them. Right. You know, just just but, but, immerse yourself in this world. But it, if right, and You're the right. songs kind of narrate it. I I agree with that, but but but. You know, I've been reading this book about uh, Frank Rich's reviews, a collection of Frank Rich reviews. It's a book called Hot Seat, which you can't even get. It's out of print. I was lucky enough to get it on Amazon and some deal. All his reviews were 1980 and 1984. And what you realize is that these shows were departures. They were revolutionary. The idea of having a show like Cabaret or having a show like uh, Company or Follies was just completely different than what was before. Now, as you say, it seems natural, it seems to be an evolutionary step. But uh, it was a major step, and he was a very big part of it. So it's a big loss, but he was a tremendously uh, tremendously accomplished. I mean, it's the only way to describe it. Um, baseball. You brought an article to my attention uh, about baseball, about the... Yes, well, recently it was pointed out to me. Yes. That you no longer, if you're doing an intentional walk, yeah, and uh, you know throwing uh, balls mm -hmm. to a hitter on purpose, he, on purpose, so you can get around him and pitch to the next guy, right? You don't have to do that. Well, you never right? had to do it. But no, but I mean, you don't have to actually throw the balls. You can just say, oh, well, that's true. This too. is an int intentional walk. Right, right. Boom, boom, boom. Let's not waste each other's time. Yes. Okay, so that was interesting to me because I never noticed that before. It saves eight seconds a game. All right. <laughs> and then, uh, so when I saw intentional walk in a headline right. in the Wall Street Journal, I thought you had to read it. Yes, thank you. So the, that article, which I read, was about this. The Houston Astros, some would say the best team in baseball, does not issue intentional walks. They have gone the entire year basically without giving an intentional walk. An intentional walk is a strategic move because you, you say, I don't want to pitch to that guy. He's too dangerous. I'll pitch to the next guy. The pitcher or, or... The manager tells the pitcher what to do. No, no, no. I mean, it's somebody who can't, who doesn't hit very well. So, or somebody... well, but wait, no, you raise a very important point. Yeah. Uh, the team that doesn't give intentional walks... Is in the American League. They're Houston, and the oh, pitcher so, doesn't bat. Okay. But that's a key thing. In oh. other words, that strategy, Houston says this is a brilliant strategy because an intentional walk uh, is, is terribly ineffective. Why would you ever do it? Well, first of all, if you're in the National League, you do it because the pitcher's up next. Right. So you, right there, you put a puncture in their balloon. But the other thing is that uh, the reason that you might or might not do it is because is a hitter that you're facing so much better than the alternative. Barry Bonds got a million intentional walks. They barely would let him bat at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have a situation now where there's any team as a hitter that's twice as good as the guy who's up next? And generally not because there are so many home runs. Anyone, everyone's dangerous. The other thing is you don't give the intentional walk because it used to set up a double play, but people don't hit the ball on the ground as much. Mm -hmm. So you don't get out of the double play. But that's not really the reason the Astros are good. And See, the thing, when you have a good team, you know they think you really know. That's, right. a, that's a line from Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof. Uh, yeah, well, if you were rich, they think you really know. But uh, the truth is, they just have the best players. And here's why. Let me give you an illustration of it. Um, Zach Greinke was the best pitcher available uh, uh, to be traded uh, last week, which was the trade deadline week. And um, the Yankees, who are vying with the Astros to be the best team, are dying for pitching. They have no pitching. And the Astros are pitching rich. They barely need it. And who gets to trade for them? The Astros. And now the Astros are a super team, and the Yankees are out of luck. And why is it? Is it Were they asleep at the switch? 
No, because it turns out that sometimes New York is a, dis is a disadvantage, not an advantage. Why? Because Zach Greinke is an odd guy. Zach Greinke suffers from social anxiety disorder and at the beginning of his career suffered from depression. And he can't deal with large crowds or pressure. So he has a list of teams he will go to. He won't go to New York. Really? And he goes instead to the Astros. And he goes on that team. That's a team with Justin Verlander. And people say to them, well, you're not going to be necessarily the top guy. They have Justin Verlander. He goes, Just good. as well. Good. <laughs> I said, well, how do you compare to yourself with Justin Verlander? I said, I don't. Well, have you watched Justin Verlander pitch? He said, not really. <laughs> Leave me alone. I've got to go, you know. <laughs> so uh, they lost that. But the Yankees also kind of surprised me, and I'm not a Yankee fan, because they didn't, they couldn't get Marcus Stroman, and Marcus Stroman went to the Mets, who was the other big pitcher available. And I can only imagine uh, that the Toronto Blue Jays were in the Yankees division wouldn't deal with the Yankees because they feel they're too good already. I don't understand it. But the fact of the matter is, and I don't want to dwell on the Mets too much because you'll tell me I'll jinx them, but the, I, the Mets have a better record than the Yankees since the All-Star break. And you're going to say to me, Dan, how do you know that the Mets record at 15-6 and six is better than the Yankees? And the reason I know is they have the best record in baseball since the All-Star break. Right. The Mets have put themselves back in the hunt right. for a wild card. This is a team that suddenly is competitive. Overnight, they won seven games in a row, and now they're right there. So we right. shall so, see. So, so watch yourself. You can jinx them. But this Stroman guy you were telling me is interesting because he's short for a pitcher. Yes, he is. He's So what they tell you in baseball is that, number one, they'd like to see a pitcher who's tall, so he's going to be sturdy, number one. And number two, particularly a right-handed pitcher. And those, major leagues are always willing to give a little more license for a left-handed pitcher because they're more rare and it's nice to have a left-handed pitcher. But a right-handed pitcher, if he's not 6'2", a lot of teams will not even scout him, will not even look at him. Marcus Stroman is 5'7". Somehow, he convinced somebody to give him a chance, and he's been tremendously successful. The real issue with Stroman on the Mets is that Stroman is what's called a ground ball pitcher, okay? A lot of pitchers these days are strikeout pitchers, and there's a disadvantage to being a strikeout pitcher because it means you're throwing a lot of pitches because you're depending on striking people out. Stroman gets people to hit the ball on the ground. That's good because you're less likely to be, uh, you know, you're less likely to run into a home run, right? Yes. But the problem is you hit the ball on the ground, your teammates have to be able to field a ground ball, which takes us back to the Mets. <laughs> the Mets, uh, and this is no kidding around, a lot of people question why would Stroman uh, think uh, he would be successful with the Mets because the Mets can't catch the ball on the ground. So we shall see. The Mets will have to shore up their defense. Uh, but I know you're thinking good thoughts with, with me. May I just say that yeah. generally I, coming from a long line of short and sturdy people, yeah, I, I don't think height is necessarily indicative of sturdiness. No, uh, you have a point. You have a point. That uh, low center of gravity. The low center of gravity. Uh, but there's a little bit to the angle, the arm, the extension. Uh, I, I think basically anybody can be effective, whether they're short or they're tall. The thought is a big, sturdy athlete is less likely to wear down, is less likely to be hurt, is more likely to be able to continue to pitch and pitch and pitch without breaking down. Well, we'll just see. Yeah, I, I think Stroman because will Because there's it. been a lot of breaking down of those bigger players on okay. the Mets. <laughs> well, look, you're right. Listen, the guy's a success. I'm thrilled that the Mets have Stroman. I'm stunned. Stunned. 
that they have Strowman. All right, so you and I were going to talk about some... Um, you have three things you want to recommend. Please. I have three things I want right. to recommend. Okay. Okay. In case people need recommendations. Well, they, they look to us for, for summer fun. They look. I think it's fair to say they look to you for recommendations. No, I don't think so. They look to me to pick the horse is going to come in last in the Kentucky Derby. They look to you for recommendations. But I will not shrink because I know you are a witness to at least two of these. The first is we uh, happened to run into uh, the opportunity to see uh, uh, the Philadelphia story. On television just the other the night. Movie. The movie. Black and white. Black and white. You know the year of it or anything? Yes, I do. 1940. 1940. So the With? Starring. Starring, uh, first and foremost, Catherine Hepburn, Cary mm. Grant, uh, Jimmy Stewart, and uh, Ruth Hussey, because it was Ruth Hussey week at TCM. God knows why. She's a supporting player. And uh, it's uh, based on a play by Philip Barry, who wrote sort of society-type plays uh, but some of them were extremely good, and this was extremely good. And uh, Catherine Hepburn starred in the play on the stage in New York, then bought the rights, uh, got the director she liked, George Cukor, had something to do with putting the cast together. And, you know, I, I, there's no reason to dwell on it because it's not as if the story, a Philadelphia story, is so fantastic or so great. But the dialogue is great. The characters are real. The acting is fantastic. The fashions are fabulous. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, guess, I, guess there are. I mean, Catherine well, Hepburn looks uh, amazing in these different uh, frocks. Really? And going to well, the, and from. The guys uh, are wearing these, yeah. these fancy double-breasted suits all the time, too. They don't look too bad. Jimmy um, Stewart. And but, let's just see Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant do these scenes together. It's fantastic. Well, this makes Catherine Hepburn's career right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. But what was fun to me is that, remember, a few months ago, I read that memoir by Janie Scott. Right. Okay, called The Beneficiary. Right, right, Which right. was the story of her father, Robert Montgomery Scott, mm -hmm. okay, who ends up being, amongst other things, um, the director, the president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Yeah. And it was about that whole sort of Philadelphia upper crust lifestyle. Well, his mother, Robert Montgomery Scott's mother, Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, was theoretically the basis uh, for the, um, the Catherine heroine. Hepburn character. Yeah. And uh, she and her husband, well, her husband was a classmate of uh, Barry's at Harvard. Oh, there you go. And so uh, Barry would come down and visit. Uh, he must have admired the, this woman the a great Philadelphia deal. Philadelphia yeah. estate, yeah. and um, you know, and collect these little vignettes and stories, etc. And this woman was a tremendous horsewoman. She was a philanthropist. She had danced the Charleston with Josephine Baker. She had gotten um, what's his name? Uh, um, well, never mind. There's a million stories about her. Um, and uh, she was quite a character. Right. Uh, so it's uh, it was fun for me to see how this uh, how she was kind of played out. Well, that character is, movie. Is, is the center of this this play in this movie. And, and, and you're right. It, it did make Catherine Hepburn's career and she knew it. That's why she made it into a film. Vanity Fair called her the unofficial queen of Philadelphia Wasp oligarchy. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. So, it was uh, you know, uh, kind of perfect. Yeah. A character for Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so that's a great book. Uh, Beneficiary, The Beneficiary by Jenny Scott. Mm -hmm. Kind of really um, revealing 
this whole society in the Philadelphia area during the, this well, listen, time? Listen, it's not a subject that I would think would interest me, but Philadelphia story is just great. And I, yeah. and I bet the beneficiaries Well, you're right. Great. It's really all about the wordplay, yeah. uh, et cetera. And the timing and fantastic. And Catherine Hepburn is born to play that role. But, you know, something, Cary Grant's great. Jimmy Stewart's great. And he has some wild outfits, outfits too, Cary Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. You know, I hate to say it. Cary the Grant's, rich people were wearing yeah. wild you things. You know something? Cary Grant's never bad. Never bad. <laughs> and, of course, Jimmy Stewart, Princeton man. Well, yes. 1930, I think, but some time ago. You know, I, 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 he won the Academy Award for Best Actor. And I was wondering how he got it, even over Cary Grant. And I know a lot of people revered Jimmy Stewart for his wartime service because he was in the Air Force. But this was 1940. This was before the war. So in any event, uh, great movie. He was probably pretty fresh out of Princeton. I, I think he was later than 30. I think he was like it was 30 or 31 because Josh Logan was really? about the same time. Yeah, that's the deal. So uh, the other thing, I, the second thing I'd recommend, I haven't seen it, just a great article in the Times about Liza with a Z, which is the television special. It was a song and dance special put on years ago, and it was uh, choreographed uh, by Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse, of course. And it's just a wild, over-the-top positive review how great Liza Minnelli is on that. And, of course, Liza Minnelli became famous. I would rather stick a needle in uh, listen, my eye. First of all. Before, Liza Minnelli? I'm telling you. Have you heard the song, Liza with a Z? It, Liza with a Z. It's the worst song so wait ever. A second, wait, let's back up for a second. Liza, of course, became famous for that same cabaret because she was in the film version. Uh, Harold Prince. No, Liza became famous because she's Judy Garland's daughter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But she was famous for Cabaret. Bob Fosse directed the film version of Cabaret after Harold Prince directed the play. Uh, Cabaret, of course, uh, Candor and Ebb, and of course, Liza with a Z by Candor and Ebb. And you have had the privilege of hearing Fred Ebb sing that song. Yes, and he was pretty funny. Yes. But really. Okay. Really? Anyway. A anyway. Lincoln, so, Lincoln Center was showing it. I'm just telling you what I'm they, reading. What were they? were showing it outdoors Outdoors. Or something? Lincoln Center outdoors. With some dancers on the side? I, that I don't know. I mean, it was a whole... Uh, I don't know. What let me go to the third it. recommendation. Yeah, do. You're trampling over my second. Hurry. Okay. It's a bad taste of it. We saw life. a movie together with Nico and Granger called Hot Millions. Best movie ever. And, and with none of us have ever heard of. Never. Completely weird. Uh, Best largely movie. English movie starring Peter Ustinov, who nobody remembers, who did a, was sort of a polymath. He was sort of a classic scholar. He did a lot of classical stuff, but he was always a funny guy, kind of an odd guy. Um, he's the main character. Maggie Smith uh, is his From counterpart. From Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. Some of you may wonder. As a young. All right. The Dowager. The Dowager beautiful of Downton Abbey. Maggie Smith was most famous for the prime of Miss Jean Brody, uh, but she this was even before that. She's a very young thing here, if I can use that term, and she is fantastic in the movie. She's sort of like dip, dipsy, but uh, not really. And so, Ustinov, if you can believe it, what was the year of the movie? 1968. Ustinov plays a con man yeah. who is pretending to be a computer specialist. Right. And, and uh, in, a, in a department, it boggles the mind. In a department run by Carl Malden and Bob Newhart, the two Americans who, of course, are ready to be taken by any Englishman in a in a piece written largely by English people. Uh, We're and, so easily charmed uh, by that accent. There's no explaining the appeal of this movie, but this movie, if you get a chance, Hot Millions, 
1968 Best movie ever. Fantastic. Somebody, there's one review I said, it's not like you're laughing out loud, but you're smiling the entire time. It was, <laughs> it was great. It was oh. outrageous. All right. You're, and uh, who would think that a movie about computers. And embezzlement. And embezzlement could be that fabulous. Yeah. All right. So I'm just, um, I've been doing a lot of reading. Yes. You know, and just before we went to Block Island, I was uh, crazed to put uh, more books on the Kindle. Yeah. To be prepared. Yes. Um, especially if there were going to be rainy days or whatever. Which there were. And uh, I, you know, I was flopping about trying to figure out what I want to read next. And you said to me, you just read an article about Kate Atkinson and her series of books about a um, like police detective or retired yeah. Uh, police detective Jackson Brody. Right. And uh, maybe I would like to try those. Well, then I began to remember that I had read some Kate Atkinson books. Um, number one was uh, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Okay, so that she wrote in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And Granger gave it to me for Christmas because it had the words museum in the title just, and he knows i like museums I, it's not about a museum it's a, it's a young wo uh, woman's uh, memoirs of growing up right. uh, and so it's almost like the museum of your life more than a real museum that was a fantastic book mm -hmm. and then i had also really out of nowhere grabbed uh, a god in ruins uh which is the story, it's kind of a memoir of a fighter pilot uh, during World War II in England. She's well, a British uh, Also author, by Kate Atkinson. By Kate Atkinson, right. okay. Um, that I didn't even pick it up because it was by, I don't even know why I picked it up. Fantastic book. Um, one of the things she does is uh, she will have different narrators. Right. She will have, you know, kind of a first-person narrator but other characters from the person's story or life will pop in and give their point of view uh -huh. in a short, a short chapter. And that seems to be, um, you know, her sort of uh, structure. Uh, so those were great books, but I never, you know, and I don't know why. I was not particularly attached to her. And then, uh, so this uh, week I read two of the Jackson Brody books and uh, could not put them down. Really? Okay. And they were so called what? I, um, one is called Case Histories, and that's become a PBS, PBS series. Oh, really? So we should watch that. Yeah. And the other one is One Good Turn, but I think her latest book is like number five. But Jackson Brody is an interesting guy. He's actually kind of evolved. Really? Uh, yes. It makes me nervous, uh, he has I guess. considerations that uh, surprise you for a former policeman and okay. uh, military guy. So, um, and again, it's kind of a complex structure. Um, it's not so much the plot that fascinates you, although her plots are great, you know, um, and uh, these are murder mysteries, uh, but uh, it's, I don't know, sort of her thoughts, the way she captures relationships and uh, captures uh, people's feelings and uh, and also language. Language can be really fun with her. And again, it's it's part of that thing I'm going through where I'm reading uh, Irish, Scottish, British stories and realizing I really don't understand English at all. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, 
All right, so we uh, will close on this. There was an interesting piece about a fellow named, um, what is his name, Sam Rudy. Uh, not an obituary. He's still very much with us, uh, although that's part of the story. He's a publicist, and notably he was the theater publicist um, for Hamilton. And uh, he's retiring. And there are a couple things he said I just thought were worth passing on. Number one, it's interesting. This kind of resonates with me, I guess. He's uh, 66 years old, and he's retiring uh, to Pennsylvania. He's moving from New York City. Uh, he says, uh, it feels right, he said, quote, I know a lot of people think New York City is a great place to be an old person because there's a Dwayne Reed on every corner, but I truly <laughs> believe in full circle. I should explain for those of Dwayne Reed's a drugstore, and there are a lot of drugstores in New York, and a lot of people do think that New York's a great place to retire, but he believes, as he said, that uh, you come full circle. He grew up in a small town called Reversburg, Pennsylvania, milking cows and whatever, he wants to go back to Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, the article is, is largely about his experiences in terms of publicizing things, uh, and he says he's very happy with what he's done, and, and he looks forward to retiring. But the other thing he said that was, what was very interesting is a theater point, and it takes us back a little bit to what we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, he worked uh, with a lot of great uh, writers, uh, including Edward Albee, and Albee uh, had his ups and downs. He went through a real fallow period, and then he came back with Three Tall Women, which is a play that we saw a year or two ago. That was a revival. But uh, he also had a play that got it going in terms of coming back called The Goat or Who is Sylvia. You may remember that title. I remember the title. Yeah. And he said, as a publicist, it was a huge bear. It was very hard, a huge challenge to get anybody to go see this play. And they would, he said, people seem to like this play uh, and, but it would, when he would talk to his colleagues who saw it, uh, they would say to him, I really like the goat. And I think, why are you whispering? And I realized they felt they needed license to say they liked to play with such a weird title and such a weird concept. So what they did was, uh, they said, we wanted to get people talking about the play. So besides sending people home with the playbill, and you know there's been some controversies that valuable to send people home with a playbill. They actually started a newspaper called the Goat Gazette, which uh, was a four-page paper that they did every week. So they sent people home with that, and they found that they were able by publishing the newspaper and handing this out, they would stimulate conversation about the play so much so sometimes they would hear people talking about the play on the way out. Presumably they talk about it when they were home, and he makes the point that that was the key for them. And, and here's a quote. Uh, one thing that was remarkable was the number of people who would stay in their seats talking about what they had seen. It underscored one of Edward Albee's favorite sayings. It's the theater's responsibility to send the audience home in a condition different from the condition in which they arrived. Think about that. Uh, also, the bartender's responsibility. <laughs> yes. But that takes us back to Harold Prince and, and the concept musical. Uh, the idea of getting people something to talk about, something to sort of read rethink things and sort of reimagine where they are and what the world's really like. So I thought that was a great quote. In any event, uh, he's back to Pennsylvania. We're winding up uh, this week's cast. Uh, until next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Papers. See you next week. <laughs>